Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome, everybody, to this edition of the World Soccer Talk podcast. I'm your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. November is here, but the same focal points from last month were center of attention on this 11th match day of the season. The Premier League's new darling Jurgen Klopp hosted his first league victory, while our ex-boyfriend Jose Mourinho was tight-lipped after Chelsea's sixth loss of the campaign. At the top of the table, Manchester City and Arsenal increased their leads over the field, albeit slightly, while Manchester United's scoreless run reached 305 minutes with a draw at Selhurst Park. To talk about that, West Ham stumble and Everton's Sunday explosion, I welcome my co-host, Lawrence McKenna. And Lawrence, on this rare occasion that you and I are having a tandem pod, it's probably after yeah. we start with Liverpool. Please don't call it that. <laughs> we're, we're, we're a duo today instead of a threesome. Uh, this sounds like something you do at, at a rest stop. Mm, let's let's yeah. not do this. Let's not do this. this is particularly given Kartik just traveled the length of Florida, tons of rest stops in Florida. I don't want to I don't want to no make any connection No one wants to think there. about that. No one wants to think about that. Yeah. But Kartik um, Krishnayer is uh, in northern Florida today in Jacksonville for the Fort Lauderdale Strikers' last game of the NASL season. They win today. They're in the playoffs. It won't be the last game of their season. But let's talk about your team, Lawrence. 3-1 win at Stanford Bridge. A lot of talk about Jose Mourinho. Let's leave that for the back part of this first segment. Let's talk about the positive. Jurgen Klopp got his first league win, the first multi-goal game for Liverpool since he took over. And it was particularly notable because they fell behind after four minutes and still came back and really were somewhat decisively the better side on Saturday. Yeah, um... There, there's the great positivity around Liverpool, which is that the pressing worked on a number of players. Um, there's g- a good formational uh, sense out there. Um, Coutinho got his goals uh, that obviously prove that he's not the terrible player that everyone thinks his form would suggest. Um, <laughs> and uh, other such things, such as Sacco and Skirtle having Diego Costa fairly under control for the whole game. Um, not that Moreno or Klein were caught out of position a number of times during the match, or that Lucas probably should have been sent off. Hmm. Um, and then, obviously, the win is tapered by all of those, all those negative and positive factors. Um, and then also the fact that Chelsea just looked to go to bits apart from a couple of players in that dressing room who I mean arguably the only player who played or looked to play as if he was at full volume was Willian um, I, thought, I thought Costa was okay I, I want to give credit to Sacco and Skrull there Costa 
Costa maybe isn't in the same form that he was the last couple of years, but he's still moving. He's still trying. He's still getting into spaces. We see other players like Aspilicueta seems uh, okay. Uh, he definitely was more than okay on Chelsea's goal. But I, I tend to agree with you. This is the same story every week for Chelsea where we're looking player for player and kind of just shrugging our, our shoulders. Even though Fabregas was dropped this weekend, it just doesn't look like a team that has the talent anymore to compete for the league title, maybe for a top four. And we always hear this list now of players, Lawrence, that, oh, the De Bruyne's and the Mata's that Mourinho has given up on. But even this weekend, we saw Romelo Lukaku play very well on Sunday, and then Brian Bertrand is coming back too. There are a number of players around the league and around Europe now that you look at and you see they could really, really do something at Chelsea right now. It's true. I mean, you probably could make a whole team of players that Mourinho was pissed off along the way or, you know, done something like that too. But then you'd also say there's a whole team of players that Mourinho has ignited along the way as well. Mm. Um, so, I, you know, it swings and roundabouts really, isn't it, with the, what you get with Mourinho. Um, and I think that that's also part of the nature of his management is that his management is very immediate. And so he doesn't, or what his, what most people what most people's approach to Mourinho's management necessitates is immediacy. Mm-hmm. So it means that they go, come in and, and give us good results. And he goes, okay, well, I'm going to need to get rid of these guys then. And they go, okay, fair enough. And then they get those results. That, that means that they don't have the long term yes, necessarily. And then they are angry because of that. Especially when you inherit a veteran team that had already been challenging for titles for so long. Let's talk about some of the changes yeah. he made today. Finally, somebody benches a star player. Cesc Fabregas moved to the bench. Oscar back in the team. So, I, I thought you meant Benteke. Sorry. No, I was, I was actually yeah. a Looney to Rooney there. Let's go ahead and put that off for another segment, though. That's, um, I mean, that's awkward. That's two. That's three managers then who have benched <laughs> someone who's, who's a star player. And that was also that was a huge piece of uh, contention for Trevor Francis on the BB on the BT commentary in England. Really, he was he was so confused as to why Liverpool couldn't start Christian Benteke, and after Chelsea <laughs> scored after four minutes, he I think the line was almost literally um, he, he'll have to change something now. And you're like, it's been four minutes, Trevor. <laughs> and I don't think Firmino was really that bad in that role. And I really like some of the movement when you ended up with Lalana across the across the defense. Sometimes Coutinho dropping in there. It's it seemed fine, and I think the final score somewhat supports that. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I think you know, the point would be, you know, if you spend 32 million on a player, then you know there's going to be question marks when he doesn't play. Um, but at the same time, you probably say, Trevor, I'm not sure you're qualified to talk about this at this point. <laughs> Um, and I'd imagine that a guy who's been watching them in training all week probably is. Um, and then Benteke came on and fitted in perfectly. But you'd, and and it, the the, sent, the notes of vindication coming out of BT at that point were incredible. Mm. But at the same time, you say, well, that's what an impact sub does. Let's you also know? give it a couple more weeks because Benteke might not be at 90 minutes fit. At least we should give Klopp and his staff the benefit of the doubt on that. And even so... It's not so outrageous to see the Liverpool team that was put out there and think that um, that wasn't justified for some reason. I, I, I feel, but I feel the same way about the the reactions to Origi and other people like that. A week yeah. after, you know, week after week, it's just people who are indignant, looking for something to be indignant about. Well, I think. we should probably talk about Felipe Coutinho then, because he Go has ahead. he had one very good goal. He did the the main work on the second goal that uh, took a healthy deflection off John Terry. Um, mm-hmm. Other than that, he wasn't that impactful. But this really is Felipe Coutinho, that you have him in the team. He's going to go through spells like the whole first half today until stoppage time where he doesn't seem to have much of an impact. But then he can do something very special. And I guess what probably annoys you, Lawrence, and annoys me a little bit about it is that 
if you look at the special moments, you're going to think he's a world-class player. And if you look at the bad moments, you're going to think he's a crap player. But he's actually not even somewhere in between. He's something a, a little bit closer to the former. I, I get the feeling that it's almost reverting to the mean with him sometimes. Um, that, uh, that He's an incredibly good technical player and you need good confidence to be able to pull that off. And very often that's great because that can be ignited by a manager who um, is able to bring that out of him. But at the same time, uh, sometimes the system doesn't require you to hold on for the ball, to, ball, to the ball for a long time mm-hmm. or to make jinking runs or to do something that's genius. It actually just requires you to pick it up and then move it on. And that is sort of the nature of what a lot of managers maybe should be asking of him in the position that he plays at Liverpool is when you get the ball in that 10 roll, pick it up, bring it forward a little bit and then pass it on to someone else and expect to be part of a move. But I guess it's also part of the nature of the way that he plays and where he plays and how he plays that people think, well, if he's not, you know, dropping, shouldering and pass someone, then he's not doing what he should be doing. Hmm. Um, so I, I see what you mean. But I, what I have enjoyed out of him over the last few weeks is um, his physicality in the game and his, his wanton drive to be able to get back for the ball and get between players. I especially enjoy the way that Liverpool don't necessarily tackle right now. They get between the player and the ball. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's apart from Lucas. Um, but, you know, it, like he literally just gets between the player. Um, but that's, you know, that, that, that's what I find quite um, satisfying is the way that Liverpool are tackling in inverted commas. Um, because it, it, it's almost like watching a game of FIFA. You know, you don't actually have to go to ground. You have to sort of press B as much as you can or A and you just pull on their shirt a little bit until you get the ball. Mm-hmm. Or you or you jump in the passing lane between the player and the obvious pass that's going to happen. And, and think, it's satisfying to watch. Yeah. I think the thing with yeah. uh, Coutinho, and you, I think everybody tends to dwell on him a little bit when they watch him, is that he he's obviously a player that's still adjusting to how Klopp wants people to play, just like everybody else is adjusting to. And so he has moments where he does float a little bit, maybe with that number 10's mentality that you're talking about. But in that way, I find it a very interesting compliment between him and Adam Lallana right now, where maybe Lallana is a little bit too in overdrive all the time. I think we saw that um, Zuma maybe felt the brunt of one overdrive moment where he just got plowed into by Lallana. And I, I think both of, those, usual, yeah, both of those players maybe can adjust their games a little bit. But uh, what are we, six games into the Klopp era? I think there's, um, as Klopp said midweek, a lot of positives let's let's talk about Chelsea you mentioned Lucas uh one of Jose Mourinho's few things that he would say after the match dwelt on Lucas potentially should have been sent off to what extent do you agree with that yeah fascinating did you win the game no thank Mm you Mm -hmm. I I, I mean there's a number of people's analysis out there that say um yeah sure the game pivoted on that Jose not the terrible performances that multiple numbers of your players put in yes um or you know do you want to flip the coin and go with what Diego Costa tried to do with his leg? And um, that's something that nobody seems to be talking about, that he should have gotten red carded for kicking Martin's girdle. And the the official was right there, too. If It's almost as if his skirtle had made more out of it, and Skirtle seemed to not want to play into the Costa thing that got Gabriel sent off earlier this year. If Skirtle had actually gone back at Costa, Costa might have been red carded for that. Instead, Skirtle downplaying it made it seem like it was more innocuous than it was. It, but it's also the immediacy of what happened because Mikel got a yellow card for something that seemed uh, like it would have been let go if it was Liverpool, hmm. um, where, whereas the other way around. But you, I mean, there's also the point would be there, um, you know, Mourinho sometimes asks his players to do certain things and then when they when when it sort of swings the opposite way when you know we're surprised that players aren't diving then he sort of he's indignant about that yeah. so i think you know it swings and roundabouts again for him 
Let's come back to Mourinho in a second because let's actually spend a couple of minutes talking about what Chelsea did on the field. We alluded to it before. Fabregas was dropped, although he did come on late. He was actually on the field for both the winning and the uh, essentially insurance goals for Liverpool. Oscar was back in the team on the left. Aiden Hazard was through the middle. Aiden Hazard got pulled very early in the second half. What are your thoughts on what Mourinho is trying to do with Chelsea right now? It seems like he's trying to tweak a little bit, but then some of the things like, you know, pulling Aiden Hazard early, how does that really help the team in the long run not to really try to get Aiden Hazard back to his top form? Yeah, I mean, you would say it's not only just what he does on the pitch to get Hazard back to top form, um, and maybe part of it is Aiden Hazard's understanding of where is what his role is within the team, and if he's not going to try and perform that at all, then maybe he, he is better off off the pitch. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, uh, it, you would also say that it was maybe who was the substitute for? Sorry, I actually don't remember who Hazard was sub, subbed off for. It, I think it was Kennedy. It, was that Kennedy at that point? Kennedy. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. Um, let me just make sure. Yeah, it's Kennedy who he came off for. And then, you know, Mourinho didn't make uh, another substitution for another 10 minutes after that. And you'd say Kennedy did look like he was driving at Liverpool's back line as much as Kennedy is able to do <laughs> in a very different way to, to the way that no. Um, no, I agree. Hazard was going to do. I, I just think, it, you know, when it comes down to that, it seems like it's more speculation around Mourinho's management than the actual effect of Hazard. And mm. actually, he was just it, another day, if, if Chelsea are winning and he'd been fairly, um, you know, ch- say Chelsea had taken that 1-0 in the end or it had been 2-1 to Chelsea or Lucas had, you know, been sent off or whatever, then maybe we'd be saying, well, he was looking to change it in a slightly different way. And we read that slightly differently. Yeah, I think we're starting to see why Aiden Hazard has never been uh, a huge factor for the Belgian national team. You know, he's been great for Lille and he's been great for Chelsea. And we've always looked at his international record and kind of scratched our head. But there, there is this side to Aiden Hazard where it, when it doesn't click or he doesn't have the right place in your team, then he's going to look, I don't want to say ordinary, but he's going to look like a talented player who's always underperforming. Um, let's go ahead and talk about... A bit about, spoiled. Well, you, feel, you feel he's almost spoiled by that. He looks spoiled, if we put it that way. Hmm. But then is that just the... Is it the we transpose really unattractive qualities onto multiple Mourinho wingers and talented players. No one liked Robin when he was in England because he, again, he <laughs> looked like a constantly just horrible person. Yeah. Um, and he's, you know, it's the same with, as I don't. Um, but I think it's also when you see a player like William in the team. And I think the one thing I think of when I think of William is that he always just seems to be working. Um, it's very yeah. hard not to, not to extrapolate those kind of puritanical values in a way onto Hazard and just go, well, if you know, if you're not scoring goals, at least try to be like William in some way. And Oscar too. Oscar is a player who always seems to have a small impact, even if he's not setting up or scoring goals. So uh, Hazard maybe. It's, it's funny though, two Brazilians um, who. Yeah. Uh, Ramirez too. Throw Ramirez in there too. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it is different. There's different analysis depending on the, com- the continent that people come from. Hmm. Um, Interesting. You know, and Hazard should be hardworking because he's European and comes from a country. Well, I think it's not so much know. that. I think it's more, it's more like if you're not if you're not contributing in other ways, you at least need to put forth the effort to make up for it. But then again, as you allude to, and I think more broadly, we tend to think that all players should be a certain way. And just because Eden Hazard's best features aren't coming through right now doesn't mean he should have to develop new features. I think that's upon him and the coach together to come up with something Although, that works. That's actually a really good suggestion, Richard. Um, <laughs> it's, a great, it's, it's a great suggestion. If it were that easy, then we would have yeah. seen it happen more often. Top notes for Monday morning. Develop new features. Brilliant. Okay. I'll go <laughs> as if we're trying to program a player for like FM16 or something like that. Um, let's let's go ahead and tip our hat to the obligatory Mourinho post-match interview. If you saw it with BT, he basically declined to answer all the questions. Um, 
giving slightly slightly different variations on no or I can't answer the whole time. I think there were eight questions total, and none of Marino's responses really been, went beyond eight words. I, I think this is incredibly interesting, Lawrence, because a lot of people are portraying this as uh, Mourinho petulance or Mourinho being kind of a sour, uh, sore loser. To me, this is a function also of the FA finding managers for being honest after the game. And granted, a lot of that honesty is incredibly biased, but this is what happens. If you don't want managers to say be honest after the game, if you're going to find them for being honest, then you also have to live with the possibility that a manager is going to start to forego these post-match interviews, whether it be in- explicitly by sending Gary Cahill to the microphone or explicitly by showing up on camera and then saying nothing. Uh, yes, it's about freedom of speech, I guess. And if we're indignant to maybe the... the uh, I use the word indignant a lot. If we're angry about the Man City fans being fined for their booing, but we're not angry about Mourinho being fined for expressing his opinion on whatever it is, then maybe there's a double standard there. And I think I've probably been uh, critical of him for having a go at a referee in the past. But I, I'd say it's also different the way what, the way that you choose to criticise a referee. Mm. Um, I think sometimes his criticism does go too far or is based on something that you'd argue looks paranoid. Whereas it may have, it may have actually been a time where it would have been a good time to talk about maybe some of the, the, the decisions the referees have made. Mm. Um, and I, I think, you know, you're right in, in what you say. I don't think that the FA is right in... Uh, finding managers for what they have find them for um at the same time i think Mourinho is hiding behind that now um and it's it's the problem is bt are almost happy with that because it gives them something to put up on the website and go look at this awful interview that we've got and people are happy to look at that (laughs) so it becomes it becomes part of the well they've clicked it so people must want to see it you know uh, category that it goes in well, we're going to keep talking about Mourinho, Chelsea, finding new reasons to do so. But odds are Jose Mourinho is still going to be with us next weekend, despite all the stories that are in the papers uh, Sunday morning. We'll talk about that a little bit more after the break. But first, let's get you up to date on the action in the eight other games this weekend in the Premier League, starting on Saturday, where Arsenal, again, scoring in bunches in the second half, got goals from Olivier Giroud, Lauren Koscielny, and Joel Campbell, posting a 3-0 win at Swansea City. Newcastle had two good chances to break their deadlock with Stoke City, but ultimately were held 0-0 at St. James's Park. Watford took advantage of an Andy Carroll error for the opening goal and got a second from Odia Nagalu in route to a 2-0 win over visiting West Ham. Leicester got two goals from Riyad Mahrez and a score for the eighth game in a row from Jamie Vardy in a 3-2 win at West Brom. Palace nearly broke through in the second half, but were still kept up a nil-nil with visiting Manchester United, while Manchester City overcame a late Joe Hart error with a Yaya Torre penalty conversion in their 2-1 win over Norwich City. On Sunday, Sunderland's tying weir highs were short-lived as Everton routed the Black Cats with four straight goals at the end of a 6-2 win at Goodison Park, and Southampton finished the weekend with a very Saints-like 2-0 win over visiting Bournemouth. Ahead of tomorrow's Spurs-Villa match, Manchester City is still top of the table, with goal difference separating them from Arsenal. Leicester moves into third place as Man United stumbles into fourth, with West Ham's loss keeping them one point out of the top four. A win on Monday by Tottenham, and they'll claim West Ham's spot. At the bottom, Newcastle's point leaves them only one from safety, with Sunderland one point back of them. Alstonville would leapfrog both clubs with a win at White Hart Lane. When we come back, we'll focus on Mourinho and the rest of the contenders at the top of the table. But first, I want to talk to you about our sponsor, Rabble.tv. So what exactly is Rabble.tv? 
Well, it's a new place, one where you can listen to live match commentaries from real fans while games are being played, and the way it works is pretty simple. All you have to do is tune into your game, but then press the mute button on your television or in your browser, then head over to Rabble.tv to listen to soccer fans providing their own call. Or better yet, you can create your own broadcast and call one of your team's games just by signing it for free and switching on your microphone. You can listen to a broadcast uh, on your desktop, through your iOS app, and now through your mobile browser. You can call your favorite matches or get involved with your friends and develop your own regular programming. Every day, people are finding new ways to use the platform. So especially Kartik. Especially Kartik, yes. Mm. So Kartik, every Thursday, has his Divers and Cheat show, just like a number of other people have developed their regular shows. And it's really easy and to I love promote it. to. It's a, it's a great show. A lot of people listen to it. You can hear all the interaction to it. Uh, it's a really good example of what you can do on this platform. Uh, and anybody can do it. All you need is a browser and a microphone. So go over to Rabble.tv today, check it out, and sign up. Because at Rabble TV, it's your team, and it's your call. Well, Lawrence, let's jump back into the Jose Mourinho debate for a little bit. I want to spend most of this segment talking about the other teams at the top of the table, but it seems like every week we go through this, at least for the last four or five weeks, Chelsea with a poor result and the speculation about him being sacked. Um, what do you think, Lawrence? Do you think we're any closer to Chelsea changing their manager than we were a month ago? Time-wise? Um... <laughs> Yes, technically, we all move forward, and Mourinho will not manage Chelsea forever. Yes, um, I, you may be wrong, Richard. Um, I think, uh, I think yes, we probably have because that result against Liverpool again showed that there are problems within the, the club, and there are some fairly obvious things. The problem is, it's become so obvious now, hasn't it? It's not like it's sort of you know just a couple of games; it's kind of a, a long string of those sorts of things. Um, but there was also, you know, the opening goal was, I think that's what the problem with was for me, that I'm also questioning a lot of Liverpool's identity at the moment and the second coming of someone there. And you sort of think, what's what's been ignited within those players? Mm-hmm. I think that's part of the problem is we realised how fragile the confidence in Mourinho was, that that opening goal made Chelsea look like, wow, you know, oh, wait, no, we do know how to play football, you know? And he, he can still motivate us mm-hmm. um, because it bought end product from Ramirez. But then when Liverpool began to come back, then it, it crumbled again. Well, did they talk about this on BT's broadcast? Because here in the States... I lost was... interest in just tuning into the American one. Sorry. Okay, well then you, you heard uh, here in the States there was a lot of dwelling on Chelsea seemingly changing tactics after Mikel missed what was basically a sitter after, um, I believe it was John Terry headed down that William, um, William restart for across the goal to him. But yeah. We saw it a lot of times from Chelsea last year where they were very content to do this, to sit on a lead and eventually go 2-3 up through counterattacking. And there were a couple of points in the first half where you really thought Chelsea's counterattack might be back a little bit. But um, what do you think? Because other teams were bad, though, Richard. That's not because that, that relied very often on other teams leaving themselves open. Mm-hmm. And the problem was they came up against a team who were the antithesis of what Chelsea represent right now. Mm. Well, which in, is, in that sense, know, I think exciting. we need to, Right. I think in that sense, we have to give credit to Liverpool. Yes. Exa- well, yeah. And also credit to Klopp, because you'd say, if, we, if you'd have read that team sheet under Rodgers, sure. maybe it would have felt different. Because Emery, um, Emery Chan would have been playing in defence. Well, that would have also meant to back three. You're right, Richard. Right. Um, but it, it would have also meant, you know, that we would have we would have seen a couple of players who maybe were discontented under Rogers, um, such as Mamadou Sako. You definitely would have seen, not have seen the name Alberto Moreno 
on that um, form, and maybe not even Firmino. Hmm. Um, and maybe not even Benteke. I don't know. But, but um, you mentioned like reading into decisions, talking about the viability of managers, and I, I just get the feeling with the Mourinho thing. With every loss, we we have another column about how Mourinho is closer to being sacked, and obviously all the questions, most of the questions from D- BT Sport had to do with that, or at least tried to link up with that. I just feel like we're treading water with this, Lawrence, because we don't have any solid reporting from the high, uh, reporting on the higher ups of Chelsea saying that Mourinho is any closer to losing his job. In fact, what do you mean, have- Richard? Come on, we've got that BBC report today which said that someone in the dressing room would rather lose for him than win for him. Someone, huh? So it could be Loic Remy, it could be John Terry. Who, who is it exactly? Do we know? They're both just as influential players. I think we know that. <laughs> it's a little harsh, but actually, actually maybe... Uh, on Loic. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe Terry's influence is a negative influence at this point. But uh, I'm just getting really frustrated by this story, Lawrence, because in the past with Chelsea, we have had good reporters, uh, be it somebody like Dominic Feifeld at The Guardian or somebody like Duncan Castles, who's very connected with Chelsea and Mourinho, uh, report on things from Chelsea when things are about to happen. Throughout this whole month plus of speculation around Mourinho, we haven't gotten those clues. Instead, we've gotten public declarations from Chelsea saying that Mourinho is going to be around. And this week, we got reporting saying that the higher-ups at Chelsea were acknowledging that the recruitment this summer was lacking. So I'm just wondering how long we're going to spin this Mourinho about-to-be-sacked thing. It makes sense in terms of the results, but it doesn't make sense in terms of the reporting. Yeah, I think reporters are slightly confused as to what to say. Um, I mean, you know, Mourinho does confuse people with the things that he says week in, week out. And I think it became somewhat of a tactic for stalling for wait. I think, I think Mourinho was somewhat stalling for time on wait, wait for me to get it right. But in the meantime, I'm just going to tell you really confusing stuff because that means that, you know, you, you don't quite know what to say. And then when I get it right, I look at all. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I think that that's become a very common uh, thing for some managers to do is to say very kind of obtrusive things and sort of be like, just give me time, you know? Um, and I think that that is now beginning to work against Mourinho because again, people are getting frustrated with him. Hmm. It seems like seems fairly straightforward in that sense. Yeah. And they're having to fill the gap with the stories or variations of the same stories. And I don't want to make it sound like it's only about the people that are writing the stories because it does make sense on a certain level that when you see certain pieces fall in a row you want to write about the things that historically have followed and to be honest people want more stories about Mourinho there is a big thirst there always has been a big thirst for Jose Mourinho related content and in this way that's I I disagree well no I I, I accurate stories then they would not be the thirst but the problem is there's such such a dearth of inaccurate stories that therefore, or speculative stories, not inaccurate, speculative. Let's say that. I mean, the speculation leads very often can lead to inaccuracy. We've both mm-hmm. read Caught Offside, so you know, <laughs> I, I have not. That's not that's not a dig at all. Their writers, some of them are excellent people, but um, you know, some just decide to copy and paste things. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that's the nature of journalism. I, you know, I I don't think anyone is going to be mortally offended by the fact that someone points out that you churn things as opposed to you know, find right. things right. It's, it, as pointing out a fact, you know? Um, but it's just that maybe in football people, at, <laughs> at the, at the, at the ultimate irony here would be, uh, and this is what I've been at odds with this weekend is how much of football, uh, how much of football analysis is just mansplaining things to other men. 
a, a lot, a, a lot. lot. Or exactly. I, I guess I also I also feel about like... this about social media too. Sometimes we're not saying what we feel or what the what the information where the information is pointing. We're saying what we think would fit the platform and the tone without regard for the actual accuracy of it. We're just saying things that we think people want to hear in the moment. I think one thing that came to mind this weekend when watching David De Gea is back in the days when David De Gea came over from. Atletico, and there was that big rush from all the people in me. It's like, oh, he's so poor coming out for balls. He needs to improve this. He needs to improve that. And it and it turns out that David De Gea maybe can be a very successful goalkeeper without buying into all that conventional wisdom. And sometimes with the punditry and on social media, we only get the conventional wisdom and not actual thoughtful analysis based on the information that we have. Depending on who you follow. This is true. I mean, if you follow us, you only get 100% cogent, well-reasoned. Um, nah, never mind. I'm remembering some of my tweets from yesterday. Yeah, but yeah, that, yeah. yeah. Um, Let's move on to the other teams at the top of the table. Part of the reason we're taking this much time with Mourinho, as we always do, is because the results for the other contenders at the top of the table, there's not a lot in them, uh, to use a Britishism. For example, Arsenal's 3-0 win over... Swansea, Lawrence, we've seen this result over the last few weeks from Arsenal. It's very impressive on one level. They're on another level. Their goals mm-hmm. are coming in bunches, uh, so they're kind of they're kind of flipping the switch when they want to, which can be both persuasive if you want to view it like, wow, look at how high their highs are, and then a little bit worrying if you're worried about better teams that can take advantage of those times when their flip their switch is not flipped. Regardless, another multi-goal win on the road, and they're still even on points at the top of the table. Yeah, and, and also all the goals coming. Weirdly, there have been, I think there have been a couple of results like this where they've had a very poor first half um, in which yeah. most people who analyse Arsenal go... The result this seems to be identical. Yeah, but in, in which time most people go, well, the other team played well in that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, or the, the general thing you'll see on an Arsenal fan channel, not that there are many of them, um, but they'll, they'll say, well, we made them look good. Which is mm. it, which is taking utter responsibility for making someone look good. Yeah. So you still get a slight sense of feeling good about yourself, um, yes. despite the fact that you made someone else look good because you were bad. Well, I felt that Norwich um, actually did play well. I thought this game was just kind of a bad game for the first half. You, uh, yeah, yeah, fair enough. Uh, well, maybe yeah. maybe a little harsh, but you kind of get what I'm saying in the contrast between the two performances. Completely, um, uh, you know. I, but I also see I see the positives for Arsenal here, and I think yes. the positives are Giroud um, and obviously the scoring of the goal for everyone. The, the guy that everyone wanted to score just because they like him is Joel Campbell, mm-hmm. um, and you know there was a I think there was a collective just breathing out for him, and I think everyone was very happy for him that he managed to do that in the end. <laughs> um, no, genuinely, like no, you know, no. I know I'm just remembering he took that extra touch, and maybe against another team, that touch onto his other foot would have cost him. No, yeah, again, a good point. Um, but also, the, well, I mean, the question was also, you know, do you move someone like Santi Gazzola up there? But then I think I, I, that's part of it, is that people uh, are completely overlooking what Arsene Wenger has done there, yeah, which is, you know, the, the, the great form of Santi Gazzola that we're seeing mm-hmm. and the position that he's playing, which wasn't always the position he played for Arsenal. Um, or, or anywhere uh, else for that matter. Good point. Uh, yeah, and just his adaptation into... Uh, I mean, we, we, we've seen some good, deep play from Gazzola, and you know we've seen it um, yeah. within a couple of isolated situations where maybe he was called upon to do that, and it was never seen as a long-term role for him. But I think it's become a role which 
makes the whole team look much stronger. If you if you want to hear a really effusive and kind of persuasive evaluation of Santi Cazola, uh, Sid Lowe has a podcast that he does every week called the Spanish Football Podcast. And on the last one I listened to, he was just effusive about Cazola, admitted that he was higher on Cazola than anybody else's, but also likened him as a potential successor to Xavi for the Spanish national team because of the skill and the way that he can set tempo and the way they create create in the middle of the park. And it was really interesting because that's just not the Santi Cazola that we have grown to know for Arsenal, but over the course of the last year plus that he's been playing this role, he has been somewhat persuasive, I, I think. Um, yeah. Let's, let's move and on. Then, and then how good Meza Ozil looks ahead of oh, yeah. um, Cazorla. So, yeah. yeah, and Michael Cayley, after talking about him last week, he wrote something for us this week, and he really highlighted how Ozil, Sanchez, and Coquelin have performed this year, and Sanchez and Ozil, uh, to me, were also uh, very, very good to, uh, this weekend. Um, well, one thing I would add on Michael Cayley is I had someone bring me up who's a statistician himself, and he said they like the work that Michael Cayley is doing. Just to give a bit more context that I was unable to give last week, um, they said they like the work that Michael Cayley is doing. However, they feel it is based on too small a sample size. Um, for uh, the, the arguments that he's making. Well, and so if, if there was a larger sample, they believe that it would become a more accurate model. Yeah, I, Although I, that's the case with every bloody statistician model, isn't it? It, it, it? it actually is. I would say the one thing I would say in Michael's defense is that he's not, he's not saying that Arsenal will do this. He's saying that Arsenal... To, to base this on the Arsenal argument. He's saying that based on the first 10-11 matches of performance, Arsenal is performing in a way that's historically consistent with X and Y. So, of course, if the sample size increases, but if you actually look at Michael's work, he actually concedes that. It's just you know, it's something that you can caveat every single tweet with. Um, and I would encourage people to go to the site and because he really also breaks down how tactically Arsene Wenger has adjusted a little bit to uh, kind of get the most out of Francois Coquelin. Um, Francis, Francis Coquelin. Um, let's move on uh, to Manchester City Norwich. I don't think there's much in this one also, uh, Lawrence, although... I should say that. Well, because Norwich started with five at the back, sat back the whole time, were outshot something like 21-5. to five. Manchester City broke through early in the second half. Joe Hart let Norwich back in, and then uh, Raheem Sterling drawing a penalty late gave the match mm. to City. I, don't think there's just, I just don't think there's much to learn from this game. If you set up with five at the back, sit very deep, let Manchester City play with the ball... Yeah, you are probably increasing your chances to get a result if you are in Norwich City, but you're not really telling us very much about the likelihood of you improving as a team going forward, nor are you forcing Manchester City to tell us very much about themselves. No, good point, but then that's not your role. Your role is to get a result from the game. Right, um, right. And, you know, so if effectively I'd say that I quite enjoyed the way that uh, mm-hmm. Norwich approached it, this game. It, it was good viewing, but it just doesn't make for entertaining analysis. Like, we could try to make make some deep analytical point about this game, but this game is not something that is going to inform us how likely Manchester City is to claim this year's title. Yeah, no, good point. Um, well, I mean, maybe because it can bring out the old cliche, Richard, of well, they managed to scrape out a win here. Yeah, um, but, but did you not expect them to scrape out a win before this game if, if Norwich City went to this? Uh, yeah, although the point there would also be with Norwich. If you look at their uh, fixtures more recently, then just not to have a blowout in a game yeah. is maybe a good thing for them. I, I um, completely agree. With the way that they had been defending recently, particularly the Newcastle game, this was almost kind of like a um, a moral victory of sorts. Yeah, although they, they'd had two, I'd say, pretty decent results in a row. Uh, one against Everton, obviously, during the week in the, Car- in the Carling Cup, which I think is definitely a morale booster. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also the one the week before against West Brom, where they lost 1-0. But ultimately, that's much better than and is, is good for recovering from 
a result like uh, the, the Newcastle one. Although before that, then you'd say there there were some fairly memorable moments for them where they you know they won against Bournemouth, uh, they won against West Brom, and and they they'd also managed to. Uh, they managed to put some good performances in, but nothing. I, I think when we said this on the podcast, nothing that meant that it looked like they were going to stay up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's why I was kind of encouraged by the pragmatism of starting in such a defensive way against City and almost looking to frustrate them. Mm-hmm. They're in 16th place right now, only two points above the drop. I still like them to stay up, and I uh, think it's probably worth more talking to a team like Bournemouth right now than Norwich, but uh, we'll get to Bournemouth eventually. Um, let's talk about Crystal Palace and Manchester United to the extent that we can talk about anything from this game. Crystal Palace got very good performances from their wide midfielders, uh, Yannick Balassi, Wilfried Zaha, eventually forming Matteo Darmian off. Very in that performance, Manchester United only had five shots all game. Palace had 10. It it just seems like the quintessential 2015-2016 Manchester United performance. Mm, it was great. Um, it was, uh, although you'd also say then, uh, you know, Palace did very well and probably should have gone on to win the game. Particularly in the um, second half. First half, maybe Manchester United had slightly better of the chances, but in the second half, it definitely looked like Palace was more likely to get uh, a goal than United. Yeah, limited chances. Um, there were thing. There was a whole uh, thread today of Manchester United fans just saying, and it, um, it's wonderful revisionism. Um, I'm convinced that Sir Alex Ferguson uh, wanted to sell Wayne Rooney. Mm. Um, I, I'm convinced to the point where he didn't. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, you know, the, I, we, you can't blame Manchester United fans for reaching towards any thin thread at this point to to. To not have to just say over and over again, Wayne Rooney is terrible, Wayne Rooney is terrible, because Wayne Rooney is terrible. I mean, Kartik said a couple weeks ago they thought Cesc Fabregas was the worst player in the Premier League. And we had a writer uh, a couple weeks ago also say they thought Wayne Rooney was the worst player in the Premier League this year. I think that writer is winning out right now. Wayne Rooney is really unconscionably terrible. I say unconscionably because he shouldn't be playing. Well, yeah, that's part of the problem. But would you also say I feel so, I felt somewhat of a brotherhood alongside those fans because I almost <laughs> felt sorry for them that they felt that they had to go to that extent to to, to pull for yeah. something like that, which was basically I almost wanted to tweet and sort of say it's okay to say he's bad, like it's all right yeah. to say as fans we're disappointed by your performance. Mm. You're not a bad supporter for saying you did bad today, mm. like. You almost like as a fan, I, you you almost want to be that. You almost want to always give what you imagine their father would say to them, which would be, "You didn't play well today, but I still think you can." You I, know? I, I wonder if Wayne Rooney deep down does think he does he think he still has it in him. Whether, whether he wants to, I, I mean, or if you, yeah, yeah. I, but again, there's no evidence to suggest either way, so I'm not going to try and comment on that. Mm. Um, but what I would say is, it's confusing to see someone who everyone talks about as this master because it's so at odds with the analysis of Louis Mangal, which you know he doesn't suffer fools he doesn't like people who don't right. try for it he doesn't like people who aren't part of the cause and like all those kind of things and he's a master tactician but he's starting Wayne Rooney yes and I think that's where the discussion needs to go we don't need to discuss whether Wayne Rooney is bad anymore there's really no discussion to be had there we need to discuss why Louis van Gaal keeps going in this direction. And while that's all speculation because we don't know what's inside the mind of Louis Van Hall, thank God there's probably some very gross stuff in there. What we do know is that Wayne Rooney, beyond all explanation, continues to start and Manchester United has options. I just don't see it, Lawrence. I don't see any reason for it. The one thing that I contrived in my mind as I was watching the game is that 
Louis van Hall doesn't feel like on a kind of a club cultural level that he can just bench Wayne Rooney. So what he has to do is play out this game where Wayne Rooney essentially benches himself. Wayne Rooney makes the case with his play that he cannot be on the field. And then once he starts to be benched because of that, then Louis van Hall can push forward. But until that happens, maybe he feels like it's just too sensitive culturally within the club to bench Wayne Rooney and create this fiasco sideshow that could uh, derail their season. I suppose at that point you also look at the bench that they had the other day, which basically offered them the option of Bauer and Fellaini, <laughs> Lingard, or Ash the, the younger to push to, the, to push Martial the, more tight. And then the tweet the tweet was, and this was during the the Middlesbrough game. Wayne Rooney is literally the worst person on this bench, and not only does Wayne Rooney get in the game, he ends up missing the first penalty of that shootout. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, although you never wish for anyone to miss a penalty in a shootout, that must be a terrible feeling. Um, but then the positives, obviously, for uh, for the for the Palace side is that they kept uh, the, the young, promising front line quite quiet. And, you know, the, there's two other experienced players in there, uh, three other experienced players in there, Schneidlin, Schweinsteiger, and Mata within that midfield, with Herrera uh, and Martial kind of in and around that, that, that competed against a midfield that, you know, most people would say under... Any other manager but Pardew looks distinctly not like the kind of midfield that should be competing against that. Um, that's, that's a very good point. We have, to, we have to be careful to balance our criticism with praise because Palace, I think, did play very well and probably were the team that was more deserving of a win. Draw probably seems appropriate. Uh, we're going to talk about our players of the week, some more results near the top of the table in the next segment. But first, let's take our first trip to Europe, uh, where the last perfect team amongst UEFA's big leagues lost that label on Friday. No, Bayern Munich didn't lose in Bundesliga play, but at mid-table Frankfurt, Munchen was drawn nil-nil. They held 69% of the ball, but they only generated 10 shots. Uh, that meant that Dortmund, coming into the week seven points back, gained ground after a 3-1 win at Werder Bremen, while Wolfsburg claimed third place with their 2-1 victory over Bayer Leverkusen, a victory that took advantage of Schalke's 1-1 draw with Ingolstadt. In Italy, the weekend's marquee match was at the San Siro, where league-leading Roma arrived, looking to reproduce Fiorentina's feat of exploiting Roberto Mancini's attack shy inter. Instead, it was the Nerazzurri snaring an early goal, a Gary Medell 25-yard rocket, and holding on to go top of the table in Italy. On Sunday, they were joined by Fiorentina, whose 4-1 win over Fronzenoni put them on 24 points through 11 rounds. Roma is one point back, followed by Napoli in fourth, who stumbled to a nil-nil draw at mid-table Genoa. Lawrence, our players of the week, we only have two this week. I'm a little tempted to pick a random player of the week for Kartik, but let's go ahead and let him, let him live in NASL peace for today. Um, let's start with you on this one. Who is your player of the week? You do almost feel like that's how Kartik does it, isn't it? <laughs> um, well, I've got a dartboard, and I'm just going to throw a dart. No, no. Um, uh, this is a hard one. You know, I love my honourable mentions. Aruna Kone has got to be the, the mention, surely. Hmm. Um, because of... I don't know, everyone... Uh, he was a great player on Parivo back when he signed for Wigan. Um, and that was always very satisfying to play him because he, he was uh, refreshing as his approach. <laughs> and you always hope that that is what would come when he was at... Uh, when he was at Everton, because he looks like a wonderful compliment to R- Romelu Lukaku. But um, and, and this weekend they were, but that tandem was great. Exactly, uh, it was just so satisfying to watch. Hmm. Um, and you, 
for, for him and the, the, the level of players that Martinez is working with there, you'd say Runa Kone sums that up perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the satisfaction that they must have about, about scoring against a team who sit, hold on a second, <laughs> second from bottom in the league, um, it, it, it's fantastic. Uh, it was it was a really great performance from him. To be fair to him, um, and it was it was just great to watch. Uh, Hat trick, uh, and you'd, you'd argue I think it was one assist, but maybe it should have been more mm-hmm. uh, within the game. It, it, it's more than says he's a good player, and more than says that he deserves to get this position this week. Yeah, three goals and one assist. That's you can just go on the, the score line for that one or the, the yeah. stat line for that one. Although it was generally fun to watch that team in the second half. Uh, Lukaku, Gerard Delefeu all had very influential games. Uh, you know, every once in a while, we pick a player of the week kind of as a point of privilege to highlight somebody that we've liked for a while. Um, I'm going to go with somebody who maybe has been performing in the shadow of a couple of other breakout performers. There's a lot of focus on Jamie Vardy for Leicester, rightly so. Yeah. A lot of focus on Riyad Mahrez. I'm going with Mark Albrighton this week. Uh, Albrighton has been consistently, yeah, consistently very good um, this year. And the two crosses that he put in for Riyad Mahrez today were just inch perfect. Um, really made Mahrez's job very easy. And I thought it was just the type of play that we've been seeing from Albrighton all year. Um, we've seen Mahrez uh, drop for a little bit in this team. We've seen other players come in and out. Uh, we've seen players like uh, Gokan Inler unable to nail down a spot in this team. There's a reason why Mark Albrighton is a consistent starter because he is probably the most consistent player in this team. And uh, this weekend, it paid off with two two assists. So I'm going with him just as a way to highlight his performance. Mm. Um, let's go ahead and stick with Lester. Uh, the story going into this game at West Brom was Tony Pulis. Tony Pulis, it seems like once every month or so, kind of comes out with these comments defending defending overlooked British managers. And this week it was saying that uh, Claudio Ranieri was basically reaping the rewards of Nigel Pearson's work at Leicester. And I, I don't think that's completely unfounded, but it, it is kind of rude to bring that up when your team is facing Leicester this week. And in that way, I wasn't too... Uh, disappointed to see Leicester get a three to two win over West Brom, a three to two win that was very characteristic of the different performances that we are seeing under Claudio Ranieri this year. I d- I just don't get what I mean. I get what their point is. The point is, yes, this other person. Uh, what he's saying is, this other person built the squad, and therefore they should be reaping the rewards. Yeah, but nobody was. You had players forgotten. who yeah. went to a, who went orgy in the summer. You have the, the club was <laughs> out of control under Pearson, not because of Nigel Pearson's construction of a squad. His ability to construct a squad is quite different from his ability to control that squad. Um, and he was also, he was a bully yes. within the press room. And there are a number of other reasons why Leicester didn't want him representing. Nothing to do. The, the problem is, and I think the, the football ramble summed up perfectly not long ago, is you can get away with anything in football as long as you're a good football man. <laughs> whatever that, and it really yeah. helps you whatever that means yep. you know but yeah but he loves his football well it seems like yeah. tony pulis has but appointed he's, himself he's like at home he's not nigel pearson didn't do that but that, right. it, what i'm saying is you know that you can't you can't just get away with everything like that and right. at the same time they're not playing pearson's football they're playing much different football vardy looks like a much improved player a, a player who's in, integrating skills that you'd argue that pearson wouldn't have put to his game mm. because Claudio ranieri is playing him in a uh, not a completely different position because he, of course, is not going to go from he's not going to go from forward to left back, but it, it's a difference. 
No, so that's yeah, the difference. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, whereas last year we saw like Uloa be the main goal scorer for this team, there is a, a greater freedom that he's allowed players like Jamie Vardy and Riyad Mahrez this year. I just, it's just so weird that Tony Poulos has, has appointed himself kind of the advocate for the overlooked British manager because him and Sam Allardyce. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I just think it's I think it's very weird that you would volunteer for that that role. Um, particularly when you're managing teams where you got to get your own house in order. I'm not saying that West Brom is a is a bad team, but they obviously have points to improve on. You're not you're not speaking to these issues from some kind of high perch. I mean, it wasn't so long that Tony Pulis was let go by Stoke and um, essentially walked out on Crystal Palace. I don't know if that's that recent history really recommends him as somebody that should be appointing themselves the dean of British managers. Um, but as far as the game is actually concerned. The scoreline looks typical Leicester, 3-2. The difference is this wasn't a come-from-behind effort by Leicester, although technically it was they gave up the first goal. This was more of a complete performance, more of a complete performance than we're used to seeing from the Foxes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, certainly so. And um, But then uh, we mentioned it earlier in our analysis, is, is it, does, the, does one team make the other look good? Um, or was it just that they felt, uh, not felt, but that they the other side just didn't play up to the opportunities that they were given. Hmm. Um, and it's, you know, there were a lot of things that felt quite even in this game. And actually there were times where you felt that West Brom were in the ascendancy. Um, and it, uh, it maybe statistically in the way that, you know, that they had more shots or that they felt, I think they felt fairly equal in possession in this game. Um, I don't have the stats in front of me, forgive me, but, um, but what I would say about that is then maybe it's, it's, partly the way that we watch Leicester and the way that Leicester almost lull us eye into a false sense of security and then hit them. So, you know, you it's, it's playing defensively, it's drawing in someone and then counter-punching in a sense. Yeah. But it's not, it's not that, it, we know, we're obviously not watching Dortmund, but we're watching someone who is good at drawing the other team into the position they almost want them to be in. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so you'd say it takes a very conscious manager to set up and make his players aware of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people maybe become overconfident and become and get to the point where they think, well, we'll just hit them, and then they won't get back from that. Yeah. And, and that's, but that's been very, as you mentioned, that's been very characteristic of Leicester all year. And maybe that's why it's been a little bit difficult to figure them out with all of their comeback wins and their high-scoring games. Uh, Ranieri has really enabled their team to look at games as opportunities, even when they fall behind, as they did today. Um, the numbers, if but, you heard but, me. But, sorry, sorry to cut you off, but I okay. mean, if you believe that you want. I mean, that's an interesting one. And I'd love to know what Ranieri said about that. But if you believe that you need to get the other team into the point where they are in the ascendancy or they feel they're in the ascendancy Mm -hmm. in order to achieve your best, then you almost need to get to a bad place to get good. Yeah, and I'm just I'm just wondering how much of that is applicable to what goes on at Leicester. Yeah, there is something counterintuitive about that too. Uh, the number it's not always going to work. It, you, you know, yeah. it, it, there are going to be times where you'll be bitten because you'll come up against a side who are able to just lock up or who have a good goal goalkeeping day. And then maybe that explains why Leicester has been able to produce all these results. But against Arsenal, they were actually three goals behind them at the end of the game. Um, <sighs> The, the, to- the total shots were basically even 14 to 13 for West Brom. Possession basically even 52 48 for West Brom in that one. So actually a little more of the ball than we used to Leicester actually having. Uh, let's go to Watford. 2 0 win over West Ham. West Ham's first loss of the Premier League since August 22nd. Wow. Uh, and 
Watford all year has seemed like a team. We've complimented their defense under Kike Sanchez-Flores continuously. And West Ham, through Andy Carroll's error, gave up the first goal. And I guess in light of that, Lawrence, if you had told us that West Ham was going to give up the first goal, we wouldn't be too surprised that Watford would end up getting this result. Yeah, um, I think it's partly down to the... Uh, the you, when you have a powerful team and you, th- you say, well, I can see a win coming for them, but you never really say that for Watford mm. um, because you don't class them within that. But you get the feeling that when they were to play a side like West Ham, then this was going to happen. If mm. that makes sense, yeah. because of the way that they the way that they play, and I, I think you're right um, t- to point to that, and also the fact that there is some feeling of inconsistency around Bilic at times. Um, and there's a number of managers who have come in more recently who their focus is on something that isn't... It's about getting the best out of players so that you can tactically play a game that requires you to be at the top of your tactical awareness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, uh, th- that, a few years ago, was not the case within the league because we have managers who were more... They played towards the mean, if you like. Whereas I think managers now are playing more with the odds. Hmm. And I think Village is definitely one of those, and so we'll see games like this. Uh, another pretty straightforward game, Southampton 2-0 victory over Bournemouth. Uh, Ronald Coleman really play, did a lot during the week to play up the South Coast rivalry between these two sides, but two first-calf goals. What did uh, he do? Did he put up a banner? What no, did he, do? I, he, just, he just really seemed to be wanting to make Bournemouth into the, to put, cast them into that Portsmouth role, so to speak. Um <laughs> Yeah, a, you're right. It was a little bit uncomfortable, actually. Yeah, a little bit weird because you sort of feel like a foreigner sort of coming in and going, "This is how we do rivalry." By the way, yeah, it was. It, it felt. It kind of felt like a. Uh, you know, here in the states, we've had Major League Soccer really try to build up the rivalries between the teams, and sometimes you just yeah. they they just pick two teams and you kind of scratch your head. It's like, mm, I don't know, <laughs> did they really care about each other? Yeah. And that's that's how yeah. I felt about this one. New York hate. People on the West Coast. Exactly. Know? Like New York, L.A. rivalries. Like, mm, I'm not sure L.A. really get, cares about that that much. Exactly, yeah. Um, yeah, unless, of course, we buy into 90s hip-hop. But I think, uh, you know, there's there's also... And that it, it just feels quite... not rid- It just feels a little bit weird to have someone who you feel is not... A, not someone who you'd imagine is very good at reading those kind of things within mm-hmm. culture. Uh, tell you how to be culturally um, rivaled with someone else. Yeah, uh, it's it, it's just I find it quite funny. It's quite a funny. You imagine him sort of saying, I don't know, showing people a map and going, "Well, they are sort of close, so <laughs> maybe we can, you know." Because that's what rivalry is all about. All about maps. Um, yeah, but unravel. I, I think that Southampton is slowly developing into a team that we're kind of overlooking. Um, they're putting together these consistent results. They're still hovering around sixth, seventh in the table. I think the one thing that differentiates them differentiates them from Leicester and West Ham, Crystal Palace, teams that are around or above them in the table is that Southampton has this track record at this point, specifically last season, that suggests that they are going to stay there, if not slightly improve as these, this group of players continues to get healthy, come together, stop having random things happen to them. Uh, as long as those random things don't happen to them. <laughs> yeah, because random things never happen in football, right? Really good point. Um, they're, they're level on points with uh, Liverpool and Spurs at this point, and only one point ahead of Everton. Um, although, yeah, it is incredible, really. There was a question on a live show that I normally do that I just hadn't happened to watch in the end. Um, and one guy sort of called and floored the hosts when he said, what is it which separates the top of the championship from 
um, from the bottom of the Premier League, mm-hmm. and then someone brought up Southampton, and you and it it kind of floors everyone, doesn't it? Because they they sort of go, well, oh yeah, but Southampton are an exception. And you think, well, why is Southampton the exception there? Why should they be the exception? Um, and I'm sort of asking that question: is why are Southampton the exception in this? Hmm. Well, why I, do I, they manage to leak players? You know. Well, I guess that's probably what makes them the exception. Because if we knew the answer to that, other other clubs would be doing it, and they would no longer be the exception. Maybe other clubs are trying to do that but failing at it. Yeah. Well, I think it's, that... it's just unusual that, that you know Southampton. I mean, especially as a city, and you know, there, there's so many now centers of excellence closer to financial um, hubs. If you like, you wonder why it's. Southampton that are managing to bring through so much youth or managing to be so successful in finding these unpolished diamonds. Very, very, very true. Um, On Bournemouth, they have one point in their final, in their last five games, and they are only one point above the drop. Uh, Let's take our second trip to Europe here. Let's talk about Spain, where the big two have emerged alone at the top of the table. This week, Real Madrid and Barcelona preserved their three-point gap on Celta Vigo, with Madrid claiming a 3-1 win over Las Palmas while Barcelona posted a 2-0 victory at Hetafe. For their part, Celta got an 89th-minute golazo from Pablo Hernandez to claim a 3-2 win at David Moyes' Real Sociedad. Atletico's draw at Deportivo La Coruña means Diego Simeone's side falls four points back of first place. They're now even with Villarreal, who beat Sevilla 2-1 this weekend at El Madrigal. In France, because of the upcoming Champions League play this week, PSG played on Friday night, finally breaking through at Sadran in the 75th minute through Angel Di Maria. And then after losses by Angers and Caen, PSG were left with a 10-point gap at the top of Ligue 1, with Lyon's four-match unbeaten run pushing LL into second place. So typically interesting French league football there. Mm. Um, got a couple they go of... away this week, don't they? Mm. That's going to be good. Yes, it is. We're going to talk against Real Madrid. It's going to be a good game. Yeah, we're going to talk about Champions League at the end of the segment, but maybe we can talk about that one a little bit because that's going to be the marquee game again. Uh, not to, um, I guess, I, I guess I don't necessarily believe that given how Arsenal is playing. Let's we'll talk about that in a second though. Um, our top four is Lawrence. Uh, mine are the same four teams as last week in both lists, although in a different order. Um, on form, Arsenal is number one for me, followed by Spurs, Manchester City, and Leicester. And then at the end of the season, I have City, and then for the first time, I think in three or four weeks, I have flopped two and three. I have moved Arsenal ahead of Manchester United. Uh, not necessarily because of anything Arsenal has done, because for a couple weeks now, I have been a believer that Arsenal is going to be better than what I thought they were going to be at the beginning of the season. I picked them fourth at the beginning of the season, but because Manchester United looks so bad. And if I had any inclination that Louis van Gaal was going to change things up in the coming weeks, I would still keep Manchester United too. But we're getting to the point where van Gaal is sticking with this lineup for long enough that these points dropped and the the effect that it has on bringing the team back to their peak once they finally make the move to correct it, it it gives Arsenal the opening, I think, to pass Manchester United, at least in my mythical table in my head for end of the year. So I met Arsenal 2, Manchester United 3, followed by Spurs. Your two lists, Lawrence. Hi, this is a good question, Richard. Uh, Man City uh, sit up there. Leicester, mm-hmm. Manchester United don't get on there this week. They get they drop into fifth, and above them go Arsenal and Liverpool. Mm. Um, frustratingly, because actually, when I say that, you think, well, do Liverpool deserve to be on that list considering the position of Chelsea? Um, 
and really yeah that's a great question thanks um so i'm probably going to say the coming in the season will be city arsenal united and there's just from there was one article i read i can't remember who it was by but it was i think it was in the guardian and it basically said if liverpool reach their peak under klopp they'll get fourth yeah, and it all just suddenly clicked for me. You know, if, if if the effort matches what you believe their technical ability is, then you'd say Liverpool should definitely be in fourth place within the mm. Yeah, for me, it's a matter of when they reach that peak. I think they need to reach it by about February, I think. But um, I don't know why I say that, because they're, they're even on points with Spurs right now. But Spurs likely go to 20 points after Monday's game against Aston Villa. But they're so close. I don't know why... They couldn't reach their peak in April and then just go on a run to end the season and claim fourth place. So it's also about the results against teams like Spurs, isn't it? I suppose. Hmm. True. True. Very, very, true. very flat. Yes. Um, let's talk about the one game that we haven't at this point, the two games that we haven't from the weekend. Everton 6-2 over Sunderland. We have talked about the performance from Everton when we were talking about player of the week. So let's talk about Sunderland a little bit. Sam Allardyce went to three at the back. Seemed to work for about 15 minutes because after 15 minutes it was 2-2. And then Everton just exploded. Um, ultimately, when you give up six goals after changing your formation, it's a little bit difficult to justify the formation change. Mm, yeah, but he's still a tactical genius. <laughs> Is um, Yes, in many ways. Um, the good thing for them is they're attacking better. The bad thing for them is they just cannot defend. And it looks odd because Sam Allardyce normally is able to make his team line up and defend well. Mm-hmm. But with Sebastian Cuartes starting in the centre of that, obviously because of what happened with John O'Shea the week before, um, there are there are questions over how sturdy that back line could be. Absolutely. That's um, the the other match that we haven't talked about yet, Newcastle and Stoke, nil-nil. Not very much to talk about here. Newcastle had a couple of chances to claim all three points. Ultimately, given how the bottom of the table is, Newcastle getting a point is pretty productive. They're now only one point behind Bournemouth, but neither of these teams looked very good. Stoke Stoke were outshot 15-9, had only 44% possession. They dropped Van Hinkle. Afale's on the bench also. John Walters is starting at striker. The whole thing with Stoke, it just seems like Mark Hughes is starting to go to some security blankets, and this whole idea of Stoke-Alona is being completely forgotten. Or, or should just never have been brought up in the first place. There you go. There you go. Thank you. Um, maybe it's also that there are some players in there who feel Stoke is somewhat of a shop window. Hmm. That's a good point. Uh, that's maybe disrespectful towards Stoke. Uh, uh, it it is, but it's hard Stoke. to see players like somebody on, like Van Hinkle on loan, who was in Italy last year, or Afale really, um, really seeing it as anything else but a stepping stone, a temporary place to get their career back on track, so to speak. It's also the way that you see them approach the games or the way that they approach their fellow professionals in the match, where they almost there's almost a, a, an air of disdain about the way that they approach other people within the game. Like, listen, I'm too good to be here, but I'm here for a little while. So while I'm here, just treat me like I'm one of the good players and then you'll see, mm-hmm. you know? Um, th- that's the way it looks, at least. Mm-hmm. Monday's game, Aston Villa visits White Hart Lane. Talked about Tottenham. With a victory, they t- claim fifth place from West Ham, puts three points be- between them and Liverpool. But let's talk about Aston Villa because we've had a week to... Uh, have people more knowledgeable than us chime in on Remy Gard. And I actually learned a lot this week because what I remembered of Gard was basically him being brought in at Leon at the same time that their president wanted to downsize and go with the youth movement. 
even in that context, I was not very impressed. I thought he still had players to do better than he did. Uh, but a lot of people writing this week saying that other people felt differently, specifically the people at Leon, and that Remy Garden would come to Aston Villa with a, a level of respect for what he did at Leon. Yeah, although you would also say that football has changed very significantly since he was at Leon. Hmm. Um, in the this just seems to have been revolutions in the way that managers seem to be approaching it. Although maybe that's good for him because it means uh, that he will have been away and been had time to write these things up and think about them. And, you know, um, so you'd hope that he can implement something that's going to change. You just, it, it just it, it slightly smacks of we lacked options and therefore we weren't with. Um, and you just sort of hope that that's not the way that the press approach him. Mm. Um, and that there's an air of respect around God. Yeah. Well, maybe like we talked about last week, it might have been worth uh, changing from Sherwood just because of the sure baggage and emotional nature of Sherwood at this point. Uh, Champions mm. League this week. Uh, let's, start sure t- let's, start on, <laughs> let's start on Tuesday. Uh, the last time Manchester United scored a goal, it was in Russia from Anthony Marshall against Seska Moscow. Seska is way away. at Old Trafford. Yes, it is. It's 305 minutes away. Seska yeah. is at Old Trafford. This game screams to me as an opportunity for Manchester United against a decent team, but at home against a team they got a result from in Russia, a time for them to bounce back, Lawrence. Uh, on the With the quick turnaround, too, this gives them an opportunity to actually sit Rooney, um, the question is whether they actually do that, and if they do, will it even matter? Uh, good question, Richard. Um, probably. That's what I'm wondering: is without Wayne Rooney, if they then lose, what happens? Like, does, does Wayne Rooney almost feel like a Manchester United safety blanket to you? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what Wayne Rooney feels like right now. I, I, I just can't. I can't remember the last time uh, this situation came up where there was a player that just was performing so poorly. And he seemed undroppable. I, I just can't remember it. The difference is, I think Rooney may, in this game, play a little deeper. Mm, interesting. Um, like, I, think, I, I, I think that's what he did against CSKA. Hmm. Um, so I remember if he plays deeper, that only really gives him the option up top of Martial. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe Lingard, but that, that feels like you're starting someone who's not very experienced within that area. Um, although he did obviously did play again against ESK, which is why I would say he should play. Um, so I would say Rooney will start deeper and Manchester United will look to be more aggressive towards them, obviously because they're at home. Um, and I think that's how it's going to play out. I think United will get the win. I think they'll look not comfortable, but I think it'll look a lot more dominant than we're used to seeing United. Manchester City is at Sevilla on the same day. Um, Juventus is going to be at Mönchengladbach at that time. It seems like an opportunity for Manchester City to take the top of the table. That would mean probably claiming three points, uh, beating a Sevilla team that mm, seems like could give them trouble in this one. Yeah, although you'd say you know they they only beat them two one last time out. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, but again, though, I do feel like since that game, we've seen City go through maybe some more. Uh, more difficult games. So we've seen them go through the Manchester they, Derby. They, they've also got company back too, and we talked about how big company is for them all season. And the pairing between him and Otamendi looks potentially great. And since, yeah, uh, yes, yeah, but also the five-one uh, thrashing of Crystal Palace. Um, the fairly, that was a fairly comprehensive win. Um, so for that reason, I'm going to put City ahead in this one and say that they built on 
what they last did against Sevilla um, and hope that therefore they get the result. Yeah, one thing I didn't mention in our Bundesliga diatribe is that Gladbach won again this weekend, 4-1. to one. I believe that's six wins in a row. Uh, so that is not going to be an easy trip at all for Juventus. Uh, let's go to Wednesday's game. Let's go to one of Wednesday's game because I just I can't deal with more Chelsea talk. Dino Kiev is going to okay. be at Stamford Bridge. Basically, if Chelsea plays like old tra- Chelsea, they're going to win this one. If they play like current Chelsea, who knows what's going to happen. It could be another draw. Yeah. Let's concentrate on the big game on Wednesday. Bayern Munich against Arsenal. This really oh. seems like a, a point where Arsenal can capitalize on their win against Bayern Munich before, play even better, because for most of that game, it looked like they were going to eventually lose that game. But they didn't. They've only lost one game, I believe, in the last, was it three weeks, and that game being the Sheffield Wednesday game. At the same time, it is such a big ask, even though Bayern did draw on Friday, to go to the Allianz Arena and get a result. Arsenal still needs it, though. They only have three points through three games in this in this table, in this group. So, yeah, so there's a sense of... Um belief around what Arsenal can do there. Uh, you'd also say that I think Pep Guardiola is fairly magnanimous uh, in the way that Arsenal won. Uh, and I, you just sort of wonder whether, so for that reason, he's sort of thinking, yeah, well, if we continue to play the way that we did, then we probably would have got the one, the win. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that may be telling. Uh, I just, I, you know, I mean, Bayern are fairly undeniable at the moment. Um, it, even in that game where they lost to Arsenal, they still felt fairly undeniable. Uh, and you'd say that they were, they, it was small margins uh, for them. So I, I still think Bayern have got this one. Although yeah. I'd, I'd love to see Arsenal do it. Yeah, well, let's talk about, let me summarize the stakes here for Arsenal. Arsenal is bottom of Group F with three points, even on points with uh, Dinamo Zagreb, but they lose the head-to-head tiebreaker at this point in time. Olympiacos and Bayern tied at the top of the table with six points. What mm. Arsenal really needs is for Zagreb to get some points off Olympiacos. Assuming that mm. Arsenal loses, and that's that's, a, that's an assumption that might not come true, but if they lose and Olympiacos wins, they're going to be six points behind both Bayern and Olympiacos, and they're already losing that tiebreaker to Olympi- Olympiacos. So they would need to win out, hope Olympiacos doesn't claim any more points. Um, it's definitely possible because Olympiacos' last two games after their match against Zagreb on Wednesday are against Bayern and Arsenal. But the odds are so thin at that point. Arsenal really needs to get at least a point against Bayern on Wednesday. Yeah, which is possible. So that's, I think that's it. Is, you know, uh, very possible. We, we've gone, I, was, I was only really saying that Arsenal would not be able to win that. But you wonder about a draw there. Um, mm-hmm. well, yeah, yeah. yeah. With a draw, if, if Arsenal draws and then they win at home against Zagreb and in Greece, they, they're they probably through at second place, provided that Olympiacos doesn't beat Bayern in, the, in their game. So it's yeah. not the most outlandish scenario. However, if they draw, if they lose to Munich, then they're in a situation where Olympiacos only needs to pick up one point against Bayern or Arsenal, and Arsenal still has to be perfect, etc., etc. So um, a lot of it gets a lot simpler for Bayern if Zagreb beats Olympiacos on Wednesday. And that is Wednesday. We will not be coming to you midweek, uh, as we've done in the past. Uh, we will be coming back to you on Sunday when the 12th match of the Premier League season is in the books. But until then, for the absent Kartik Krishnar, I'm Richard Farley. Lawrence? Enjoy your football. The World Soccer Talk podcast is produced by Christopher Harris and Richard Farley and is a production of worldsoccertalk.com. For more information on the show, check us out at worldsoccertalk.com or subscribe through our iTunes feed. You can follow World Soccer Talk on Twitter at World Soccer Talk or follow the show's hosts. Lawrence McKenna is at Lawscast. Kartik Krishnar is at KKFLA737, and I'm at Richard Farley. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.